1: your
4: Hello and good morning. It's 3CR Breakfast here. My name is Patrick Morrow. Welcome to a happy Monday. Hope you're having a good one this morning. We've got a big day. Uh, It's May Day, of course. It's a special day uh, across uh, all unions, and it's going to be a great day going on. Firstly, we're just going to do a little bit of a wrap around with the headlines as uh, there's been some big updates. And one that's a bit disappointing, a bit sad, Uh, Cuba have cancelled their May Day Parade uh, because of fuel shortages. Um, So uh, the Cuban Communist Government has cancelled Monday's traditional May Day Parade because of acute fuel shortages. Uh, Normally, every year, we'll see thousands of people bus in from across the island to fill in Havana's Revolution Square on International Workers' Day. So this is the first time since 1959 uh, that the celebrations have been cancelled. That's very disappointing uh, for the Cuban uh, community. So uh, that's one big one there, and another, uh, an- another, uh, excuse me, uh, another um, story out today from the Guardian was regarding uh, in the UK that. Uh, they, they found the regulator uh, who meant to be helping out workplace uh, rights is unfortunately not doing their job, um, so that's something to listen as well. But we are going on, we've got a big day ahead uh, here on Wednesday, on Monday Breakfast, and we're going to start off with um, the following is taken from a recording from Annie McLaughlin. Uh, she did it in 2018 at the launch of the Brunswick Library walking tours. Uh, she'll be reminding us of how things have changed and say the same. These Brunswick Library tours uh, pinpointed movements of working-class uh, history during the Depression. We hear from two historians involved in developing the walks, Ian McIntyre and Melinda Barry, covering the Free Street Free Speech Fights, which saw artist Noel Kunman locking himself in a, qu- in a cage to deliver a speech, despite riot police trying to stop him, and the unemployed worker movements fight to lock out landlords who were evicting families in the area of Brunswick at the time. So we're going to go to that now. Hope you enjoy.
5: Uh, Around 1930, the first unemployed group was set up in Brunswick. So initially things were very kind of ad hoc. Um, The unions were encouraging the unemployed to organise along union lines, which for most unemployed people didn't make a lot of sense. You know, a lot of the issues that they shared were more on a suburban basis. So at that time, 29, 1930, uh, the main kind of support that people could get was basically from charity and uh, run out of uh, the council here and then later on further down Dawson Street, uh, they had a sustenance depot and initially that was run by the Ladies Benevolent Society and Well Meaning or what have you, but as the name, the Ladies Benevolent Society would suggest, Mm sort of middle-class outlook. And as with today, even though, I guess, a major kind of failure of the economic system had created unemployment, unemployed people were being treated very much on an individual basis. So there was some hostility early on, even though people wanted you know, and needed the charity from the Ladies Benevolent Society, there was sort of hostility towards them because they'd often have quite invasive interviews and they'd come, apparently, from... Um, all histories that I've read, you know, that come round your house and sort of say well you can sell off that bit of furniture, you know, before we <laughs> give you any money or whatever. So that, that kind of yeah, well yeah, so it's individualizing the problem, not not accepting that it was a systemic failure. So this early kind of unemployed group would come and sort of hassle the council. It was a left-leaning labor council and in many ways was much more progressive in terms of its dealings with the unemployed than other councils around Melbourne, but it still wasn't really prepared to give the unemployed much of a say. So there were various kind of deputations and then that kind of built up to um, council meetings being crashed by up to 600 kind of people and their families demanding either the council did more or and um, you know there were various, at one point, they had to shut down the council building because people wouldn't leave. At another point, the sustenance depot was kind of... People just crashed their way in and started handing out stuff (laughs) as it was required. And the council put up um, these sort of six-foot barricades with barbed wire on top and so forth. So, yeah, things became, I guess, more radical. And then by 31, um, there were kind of statewide organisations being set up and things became kind of more organised around. The
6: yeah, such as the um, I think it was called the Central Unemployment Committee set up by the um, the Labor Party and the Trades Hall and so there was official going on at the same time as well. Um, and also too, I think um, from what I can gather, the Brunswick Council was sympathetic to the plight of the unemployed but the um, it was really the um, the the, the legislation that was used by the police commissioner at the time—a uh, man named um, Blamey, um, bit of an unfortunate name, <laughs> Blamey, um, General Blamey—he, um, police commissioner at the time, um, utilised this this little loophole in the Police Offences Act at the time, and was really determined to to use the discretionary powers that the the police had. I don't think. He represented all police, though, like it's just a small section. But needless to say, they were quite effective at shutting down public assembly um, on the basis of blocking traffic. It was as simple as that. That was how they were able to do it, and the police had discretionary powers. Now, what happened with, on the day of the cage was that, you know, you had the, the, the riot police were in force. But um, there was actually, when it came to it, when Noel Coonaghan was wanting to leave the cage, when, you know, these riot police had already, you know, like, battened the cage and there was a great big hole in it, there was, a, there was actually quite a kindly um, policeman who helped Coonaghan out of the cage and down to a local station. So I guess what I was trying to illustrate there was that not all police at the time were necessarily bad, as some accounts would have you believe. I think there was a, a mix...
3: So let's talk about some of the locations on the tour then. Mm-hmm. So that incident, Cunahan in the cage, maybe it'd be interesting to hear about some of the other different spots on the tour. In one of the uh, stories that I love in your tour is a family that's going to be evicted. There's an anti-eviction there's a, there's a committee that comes and, and springs to the defence of this family to stop them from being evicted. And uh, the, the family successfully defended, uh, including uh, stopping the bailiff from evicting the family and forcing the bailiff to sign some sort of document. Can you tell us more about that?
5: <laughs> okay, well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess right around Australia, one of the most popular forms of action that the unemployed groups were involved in was around the question of evictions, and I think that that stems from two things. One is uh, evictions was something that was hanging over many people in working-class areas like this was at the time, uh, many people's heads, um, because even if they weren't unemployed, they generally had uh, a major downturn in their wages. Um, The other thing is that I guess evictions really kind of starkly illustrated the kind of inequalities. So you had the police and the state basically um, upholding um, yeah, profit-making over over need. So uh, it didn't just happen in Brunswick, it happened all around uh, areas in Melbourne or around Australia, but there are often these anti-eviction struggles often led by the unemployed workers movement, uh, although often members of the combined unemployed councils and the ALP-type people would work with the communists at the grassroots, even if the communists at that time were very um, kind of... ..at a leadership level were very hostile towards the ALP and saw them as social fascists. (laughs) But at the grassroots, often stuff would happen. So, yeah, look, there's a a whole bunch of examples. I mean, generally what would happen, and I think Noel Cunahan talks about it in... um, Wendy Lowenstein's excellent uh, oral history, Weevils in the Flower. You know, word would get around either people who were at threat of eviction would contact uh, the unemployed groups or the unemployed groups would hear about it. They'd talk with them. They'd go and see the agent. Often they'd turn up with quite a few people and basically try and menace them into sort of backing off or negotiating that failed and the agent then got a a warrant for eviction, people might resist. And, yeah, there's a few different cases. It's sort of amusing looking at the local papers because initially the newspapers sort of obviously thought this was a bit of a laugh. So the first time they ran a story on it, they said, you know, uh, Brunswick locals had declared open season on bailiffs. (laughs) I think the story was the woman and her family... Yeah, you know, the bailiffs started marking up their furniture to confiscate it. The neighbour ran down to Sydney Road. Uh, luckily, there were a whole bunch of unemployed people coming back from the city from a demonstration. They all ran down, sort of threw the bailiff out, threw out the uh, real estate agent. And then, by the time the cops got there, there were sort of four or five hundred people in the street, and everyone had sort of done a whip around and, and raised the money. And then, in other cases, there was a house near Melville Road which involved a Gallipoli veteran and his family and after they were evicted people brought the furniture down to the town hall, dumped it out the front. The council sort of didn't like that but sorted out some housing for them and then the house was destroyed and there's, you can hear it in the walk but there's a quote from The Age where they kind of almost, yeah, very detailed I wouldn't quite say lovingly but yeah, give a very close detail of everything that was destroyed in this particular house, which I guess was a revenge thing, but it was also a warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I suppose the peak of that in this area was in Charles Street, which is sort of down Glen Lion Road, and uh, it's not a very wide street. Over a 1,000 people rallied there. I can't remember if it was 33 or 34, and people marched from as far as Williamstown kind of occupied the street and stopped the eviction so there was a lot of this sort of thing going on and presumably uh, some people felt very threatened and as we saw in other countries whether it be the UK or yeah, obviously Germany and Italy being the kind of extreme examples, these sort of right wing paramilitary type groups got formed and that's where we come back to General Blamey because yes. he was the head of the White Army Yes
6: General Blaney. Um, there is a section in my walk where I talk about memorials. As there, of course, there's the um, Simon Perry's installation that's in front of the Mechanics Institute of the, um, of the bird in a cage. And I must admit when I, first, I mean, I've noticed it lots of times over the course of the last number of years, but um, every time I look at it, it looks like freedom of speech is trapped inside the Hessian instead of instead of being on the outside but look, that's just an interpretation but in an irony there's a um, statue of Blamey down in the Botanical Gardens so look, you know, in Brunswick with, with, you know, you've um, memorialised Coonaghan and the free speech struggles and um, just outside of the city of St Road, Blamey has been um, memorialised for his part in World War I and as police commissioner and so on, so yes there's a whole world of history around memorialisation and how that manifests itself in um, statues and concept art, I guess.
3: Perhaps it would be interesting to hear a bit about the process of research. Uh, Both of the tours that that you've both developed involved a a large amount of research. Ian, i will start with you and and then Melinda. What was your process for going about doing the research? You've already mentioned some archival newspaper articles.
5: There was a fellow called Jim Munro who, I don't think he lived in this area, but uh, anyway, he was involved with the Unemployed Workers' Movement, Uh, went to jail in 32 or 33 after the police smashed up a May Day uh, rally, and I think he talked about uh, 37 of them in jail, and that's where I think the joke came out that, you know, they could have have started a reading group or a... um, a branch of the UWM or the Communist Party in Pentridge. Um, oh, yes.
1: <laughs>
5: yes. So yeah that's when I first came across this was uh, he gave a talk here in Brunswick in 1990 which was recorded and somebody gave me a copy in the 90s and I sort of got interested in that and then uh, yeah there was a pamphlet that I put together and eventually I was asked originally this walk was recorded um, but Nicole Herderby's uh, for a project that Jane Curtis was doing called People's Tours of Melbourne. With the pamphlets, which were also called Lockout Landlords, I mainly sort of relied on secondary sources like um, Michael Cannon's books um, uh, and Wendy Lowenstein's uh, Weevils in the Flower, but I also went through some of the old communist Newspapers and mainstream newspapers, just looking for any example of this kind of eviction resistance uh, and then later on, I also yeah, went through the local newspapers and, and yeah, as I was saying before, it was sort of interesting initially, the newspapers kind of thought it was all a bit of a lark, but once the agitation continued and, and this kind of protests and so forth continued, they started to take a more negative um, Tone about it, and then I guess you know that that, that then feeds into um, the police having sort of eradicated a lot of free speech in the city, then moving into the kind of I suppose but you can more,
6: never eradicate free speech.
5: Well, say. well, <laughs> yeah, so they pretty much stopped people from speaking in the city, and then they kind of moved out into these kind of working class neighbourhoods, and then it got a bit tougher for them.
6: Um, it was a big project Um, unpublished, published, published, dead, alive, just everybody and everything in this um, particular task. Um, I've got the privilege of working for the University of Melbourne Archives and it has got quite a large Communist Party collection there of photographs and um, audio recordings as I've discovered. Um, Other sources that I used were um, Good Old Trove, the um, newspapers at the at the state library, that was incredibly useful. The um, the Brunswick and Coburg Gazette, the public history section here at the good old Brunswick Library, the um, public history section over at the um, mechan- the Perret Mechanics Institute, which has got a, you know, it's got I think every copy of Fusion that's ever been produced by the local Brunswick history group. Um, I listened to the, the Noel Coonahan-Barbara Blackman oral history interview that's held at the National Library. Um, and I also spoke to a local historian. His name is Laurie Cunningham, who was able to um, give me a little bit of insight into some of his relatives who were around at that time, such as his grandparents, who used to go to the Lyric Hotel. And they have a, they recall hearing the International been sung at the Lyric Hotel. So as my, if anyone's looking at my walk, I've identified the Lyric Hotel, which is now I think the Brunswick Club, on the corner of Michael Street, where um, that, were the, that was the, um, the Brunswick base for the unemployed Workers' Movement and for the Friends of the Soviet Union who are also based. They, they actually had quite a long stay in Brunswick, um, about 10 years,
5: I believe. I just want to ask a question. So uh, if people aren't familiar, essentially, I mean, actually, you should listen to The Walk if you're not familiar, but could you tell us a bit about Shorty Petullo? Oh, God, he's one of my favourite characters
6: in (laughs) this film. Shorty Petullo, he was um, part of the Young Communist League with Noel Coonahan, and um, it was Shorty... Well, his name was Reg Petullo. He was a worker from Port Melbourne, So he's got his own identity. He was the decoy on the night of the free speech fights, you know, the night of the cage, you know, with Coonaghan getting his say for 20... I think he got his say for about 20 minutes because keeping in mind at the time, as Ian's explained, is that, you know, whenever there was a public assembly and people would speak, you know, the police would come along and shut it down. It would take seconds and the thing would be shut down. So it was quite... um, Significant that that Coonaghan got to speak for about 20 to 30 minutes. And part of that is due to the fact that um, the Communist Party had set up a decoy and that was Shorty Petullo. He got up and... I can't even picture how he would even do this. There's no-one around to ask now. He got up on top of a tram um, that was apparently heading towards the Sarah Sands, according to the Bernard Smith book and um, started, you know, trying to attract these, you know, police to, to follow him because they were thinking he was, the, you know, the, the main event for that particular night. But unfortunately, what happened to Shorty is that the, the tram ended up stopping it. It still stopped at each stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't able to go. Far, so he got off the, jumped off the tram, I don't know how, again and ran down a blind alley. And as we know, like Ballarat Street and those streets just along that section of Sydney Road, uh, they end at the, the level crossing, you know, at the tracks. So he was trapped, by, and one of the police shot him in the leg, shot him in the thigh. It was a bit excessive thought, force, I would have thought, but that's what happened. So he's like the unsung hero. So you've got Noel, but you've also got um, Shorty Patulo. So. Give it up for Shorty. I
5: believe Shorty went to prison, whereas Cunahan didn't.
6: Yeah.
5: got (laughs) jail and and shot in the leg as a a bonus.
6: Yeah. And us talking about him like 85 years later. So that's something.
4: And that was Melinda Barry there, speaking a part of the Brunswick Library walking tours. You can hear more about Ian McIntyre's history walks at commonlibraries.org slash here. And if you want to hear about your local history in the suburbs... Listeners, you can check out Common Library or your local historical society. We'll be hearing a bit later in the show about a walking tour that's taking place this morning with my good friend Joe Tossiano. Shout out to Joe. Hope you're going well, mate. Uh, We are now going to go to a break here. You're listening to 3CR 855
7: AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
8: This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the Nurses' Dispute in 1986...
1: You're listening to
9: 855 AM.
4: You are back here on eight five five a.m. this morning. My name is Patrick Morrow. It's Monday morning. Hope you're going well on this Monday, and it's Happy May Day as well. So all good out there for you workers. Happy, Monday, happy May Day. Well, now we're going to go to uh, migrant workers and workers. Organised conferences and information exchange have been a crucial element in supporting rights of all workers, from workers to daily reality, from workers' history to daily realities now. The working's women's conference took place in two thousand twenty two, two thousand twenty two, twenty two. Sorry, as part of this session called "Changing Workplaces," took place. In this, in this next segment, uh, we will hear from Hsian uh, Yong, who works for the Migrant Workers Centre at Victoria Trades Hall. She outlines the experiences of migrant women in the workforce.
10: My name is Heston and I do the research and policy work at the Migrant Workers Center. And a very brief introduction to the Migrant Workers Center: We're a nonprofit organization based here in Carlton, and we are dedicated to advocating for migrant workers' workplace rights. And uh, what we um, usually do is um, uh, representing all. Workers who were born overseas and working in Australia. However, unfortunately, most of the people who come to our center are people on temporary visas, and we have a proof. We uh, we have done research, and there is a significantly, um, statistically significant correlation between the uh, one's visa type that. The, especially the type of visa you come with uh, when you first arrive in Australia and their experience of uh, exploitation in this country. So we know for a fact that settlement right is an industrial right. So um, what today we, uh, I'm trying to um, tell you uh, is about um, our experience, a little bit of the stories that um, women migrant workers have shared with us and uh, what we have learned so far um, you know, as part of the, the campaign for settlement rights, we do annual report, um, annual surveys, and at the end of the survey, we have this question: uh, Would you like to talk to? Um, me <laughs> And uh, many people say yes, and uh, you know I get back to them and have a like one hour uh, zoom meeting and uh, am- I-, I meet amazing people through this, and uh, there are so many interesting stories that I can share with you. but let me um, share uh, one small story from an engineer who was from the Philippines. So this Filipino engineer, she said, I've worked in Qatar for seven years, and I loved working there as an engineer, but Qatar didn't have a permanent migration program. That's when my migration agent advised me, hey, go to Australia and get a, a temporary regional visa, and there you can build a more secure future. So in Australia, I came, and no one was giving me a job. Although I was already registered as an engineer in Australia, I ended up taking a job as draft person. A draft person is someone who prepares drawings and supports engineers. I am paid significantly less than what I used to earn in Qatar. At work, there are four engineers and three draft person, And all the three draft persons are migrant workers, whereas the engineers are Australian-born citizens and two of the engineers are not even engineers. They are students with no experience, and they are yet to finish their degrees. I have a master's degree in addition to seven years of professional experience as an engineer, and I have to work under their instructions. And I am the only woman, and only Asian woman that is, in the workplace, so maybe that's why I am not assigned proper tasks. I ask for on-site tasks, but they only take the other two drafts persons who are men, uh, two sides. So um, when I worked in Qatar, which is a Muslim country, I never experienced discrimination at work based on my gender. (laughs) I could go everywhere, do everything I was qualified for. So in my experience so far, Qatar is better than Australia for women migrant workers. That's why I am going back to Qatar at the end of this year. I have an Australian-born partner here, and I'm taking him with me to Qatar. (laughs) So uh, it's no secret that Australia's temporary migration programs uh, contribute to perpetuating discrimination and exploitation against migrant workers. And uh, what this engineer's story tells us is that uh, exploitation against migrant workers has a gendered aspect to it. So many women workers, they um, are subject to unfair treatment at work because of the prejudice and stereotypes about migrant women. And uh, interestingly enough, we don't hear uh, often about these kind of stories. The media, when they report about migrant workers, they focus on you know horrendous stories of exploitation. Oh, this person was paid like this many dollars an hour, or like something happened to this person and that, that person died, or you know. And they, um, because they uh, look for those horrendous stories, they, they tend to cover more men than women, and um, so w- women make rarely headlines. But um, you know, only when there is sexual harassment involved, they will make headlines. And unfortunately, at the migrant Workers center, we provide assistance to everyone, everyone. But interestingly enough, so far, only 33% of the people who are making appointments with us are women. And. On the, I'm so sorry. (laughs) On the other hand, when I do the annual survey and the in-depth follow-up interviews, the numbers are quite different. The people who um, participate in our annual surveys, 57 (laughs) percent women, and the in-depth interviews, 67 percent are women. So how do I, uh, um, how should I interpret this discrepancy? And um, I think. Women migrant workers they experience workplace issues, of course the same rate or even higher rate um, than ma- male migrant workers, but they are less motivated to speak up and defend their rights because it is so damn hard for them to find a job in the first place, so when they have an employment, uh, especially a secure one they don 't want to blow it up and um, As we saw in the Filipino engineer's case, they also um, tend to interpret the issue more a uh, personal and cultural issue so she interpreted the, the case not in an, an industrial way like she didn't talk to the union or she didn't well she didn't have any women colleagues so there was no one to talk to but um, um, instead of understanding it as a workplace issue these women who are isolated um, and in male dominant industries they tend to th- think it's a, a personal challenge to overcome So um, still, there is silver lining. One thing (laughs) uh, we can be sure of is that when women are approached, these women, they are more than willing to share their stories. They want to talk to us, and um, it it means that uh, through proactive organizing, we can turn these um, experiences into an industrial issue, um, into something that we can all uh, work together against. So I think um, the conversation is uh, really key. And let me share with you another story uh, which is a little bit more depressing. Um, um, Viewers a lot. This story was uh, already covered by ABC. I helped them uh, talk to the worker and the reason why this story was shared by ABC was because it has sexual harassment involved. Um, So um, this is a marketing manager. I came to Australia on a student visa. When I finished my degree, it was so difficult to find a job, but then I was so lucky to find an employer who was not only offering me a job, uh, but also a visa sponsorship. So I was so happy, but then I realized that I was not so lucky after all. The boss would make me to stay late alone with him or um, ask me to accompany him on overnight business trips. And When I made excuses to refuse him, he would casually remind me about my visa (laughs) or threaten me that I might lose the job. So I stayed at the job for four years because according to the current visa regulations, a permanent visa transition can be arranged only by my current employer who has the record of employment for years. So um, now that my permanent visa could be granted any time, the boss started touching me, uh, and I was so embarrassed and scared, I went to police, but there was nothing I could do as there was no evidence witness. One morning, I was fired by a text message, and then the boss came to my place, made a scene, yelling at me that I was not cooperative. I talked to a lawyer because I was about to lose both my job and years of effort towards settlement right in Australia. And my boss, uh, sorry, my lawyer, he negotiated with my boss and made the boss sign a deed stating that uh, he would keep me on the book for five more months uh, so that I could get my permanent visa in exchange for my silence about the the sexual harassment. (laughs) The visa was really expected uh, one or two months later. However, the visa processing got delayed for no reason, and five months later, the boss reported my termination to the Home Affairs. So my temporary visa was canceled. uh, Permanent visa application was rejected. Now I am in the process of appealing those decisions. Um, So, yep. when it comes to migration policies, um, there is an old trick. Put the word skilled in front of everything and then you can hush all those anti-immigrant uh, groups. Uh, for example, skilled migration, skilled occupation, skilled workers, then uh, people say suddenly, okay, it's okay to have some migrant workers um, coming to Australia. However, what people don't really understand is that when you put the word skilled, a lot of skilled migrant workers are under these kind of shackle to their um, like, uh, employer. They are um, bound to work only for that employer, and they can only get permanent residency through that employer. So I have met so many migrant workers under uh, employer sponsorship. They don't get lunch breaks. They don't um, get holidays, um, public holidays, and uh, they dare not defend their rights because they know that visa means livelihood for them. And also, um, this marketing manager just let us know that there is ge- very gender-specific specific implications when it comes to employer sponsorships. So, employer sponsorship is an institution that fundamentally encroaches working people's rights and dignity because it gives the employer a comprehensive power over workers' livelihood. So we must fight against this institution that condones exploitation and violence against working people. And migration um, policy is an in- industrial issue that we all need to work against. Thank you. You're listening
11: to Together Workers' Stories, Union News, and Social Justice Issues. In today's program, we are at RAW, Women's Rights at Work Conference, held late last year. We are looking at some of the broader issues of equity that underline the relevance of union organising. We have just heard from Hessen Jong from the Migrant Workers Centre, who makes it clear that migration policy is an industrial issue.
4: And that was Annie McLaughlin there. Thanks, Annie McLaughlin there. And that was Hessen Jong. Uh, speaking a part of the 2022 Workers' Women's Conference at a session called Changing Workplaces. You're listening to 855 AM. Uh, just quickly, shout out, uh, it's May Day, of course, and today at 11 AM, uh, there'll be a May Day walking tour by uh, Joe Tosciano. Uh, they'll be starting off at Chumley Place. Uh, a few things include the Victoria Trades Hall, Agricultural Hall, State Library, and much, much more. So get around that if you can get down there at 11 o'clock today Well, with it's May Day Of course, and we're going to play one of the f- Best songs of all time on May Day And it's "Internationally," And it's going to be by uh, Billy Bragg
7: Stand up, all victims Of
1: oppression For the tyrant's So hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no right. Or we'll die alone in our world, poisoned by exploitation. No sooner taken, they must give.
4: Internationale by Billy Bragg. So well done there. And that's that's Mayday for you in a nutshell, uh, with that great song just sending all of our hopes and dreams for the coming years ahead for all our workers out there. We're now gonna go to a bit of a change, a little bit of a change of pace, but not really, but uh regarding Mayday, and it's by Joe Tossiano, uh, in regards to his walking tour, he's gonna give you a more of a nutshell of what's going on.
7: What do Christianity and May Day have in common? Both movements have stolen pagan feast days. The Christians stole the pagan feast day of Christmas and trade unionists and militant workers stole the 1st of May, a very important day in the calendar in the Northern Hemisphere the pagan festivals. But in 1884, at a conference of the Federated Trades and Labour Unions of the United States and Canada in the United States, the conference decided to launch an intensive campaign for an eight hour working day and encouraged widespread strikes and struggles on the 1st of May 1886. In Australia, In Melbourne, on the 1st of May, 1886, brothers David and William Andre, heeding the call of the Federated Trades and Labour Unions of the United States and Canada, launched the Melbourne Anarchist Club, Australia's first anarchist organisation. On the 1st of May, 1892, the first public demonstration was held in Melbourne to celebrate May Day on the Yarra Bank. The meeting was chaired by well-known Melbourne anarchist Chummy Fleming. May Day in Australia is an anarchist day. Happy May Day. Enjoy the pagan rituals that we all love to do on May Day. If you can walk two kilometres without dropping dead, (laughs) We encourage you to join yours truly, Joseph Toscano, while I do a two-hour walking tour of prominent anarchist sites. We start off at Chummy Place in Carlton, which is the only piece of real estate named after an anarchist in Melbourne. Chummy Place. We then trundle on to the Melbourne Trades Hall to have a look at the Monument to the Anti-Conscription Movement, which was placed inside the trade hall in case it was defaced, and that was in the 1920s. Then we'll trundle along to the Agricultural Hall, the centre of the Maltioti Club, when Italian socialists and anarchists tried to alert the trade union movement in Melbourne and Australia to the emerging fascist threat in Europe. Then we'll go across to the eight-hour monument, well, they started collecting money in 1855 but didn't erect it till 1892 because the money kept going missing. And then we'll go to the Tanah Minoway a Monument and you're wondering, what's that got to do with May Day? Well, it's an anarchist initiative. And from there, we'll go to a little restaurant in Exhibition Street. No, not to eat. In 1892, David Andre set up Melbourne's First multi-storey anarchist centre. Vegetarian restaurant, bookstall, meeting place. Unfortunately, he went bankrupt two years later. Then we'll march along to Her Majesty's Theatre. And guess what? The Melbourne Anarchist Club first office was in Her Majesty's Theatre. And then we'll have lunch at the Paramount Food Hall. Cheap, accessible food. Monday the 1st of May and unfortunately I know some young folk are going to kind of dance in the streets on the 1st of May but unfortunately the traditional May Day march will be on Sunday the 7th of May so if you want to celebrate on the 1st like 3CR is doing come along to both events on the 1st of May if you want to get more information go to the Anarchist Media Institute website give us a call on zero four three nine. Three nine five four eight nine. plenty of information on the net, but the important thing is we need you there at 11am on the 1st of May because we need to celebrate May Day on the day that it's meant to be. And whether you're a pagan or a Christian or a trade unionist or you're all of them, come along for the walking tour on the 1st of May at 11am at Chummy Place in Carlton.
12: Worried about the climate crisis but not sure how to help? Whether you want to make your voice heard in our democracy, help out with local sustainability projects, or hit the streets to protest for change, Climate Carnival has something for everyone. This two day festival is your chance to meet a range of local climate and environment groups, get the facts on climate crisis, and find out what you can do to make a difference. There'll be talks and workshops, music, comedy, kids' activities and more. So come to Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on Saturday 6th and Sunday 7th of May. Make some new friends and find your place in the movement. For more information, look up Climate Carnival on Facebook. Climate Carnival is a 3CR supporter.
8: Radio for the workers, by the workers, since
13: 1976.
4: You are back on 3CR Breakfast, 855am and digital 3CR radio. Now, we have some economic analysis to sink your teeth in on this Mayday with Claudia Craig.
14: Last week, an Australia Institute report on economic equity rubbed salt in the wounds of Australians suffering under oppressive cost-of-living pressures and real-wage stagnation. The report was titled, Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. It made two astounding assertions. First, in the 10-year period before the pandemic, only 7% of Australia's economic wealth growth ended up in the pockets of the majority of Australians. And where did the rest go? You guessed it, to the top 10% of income earners. Here to explain these findings and shed some light on why wealth distribution has become just so bad is senior economist at the Australia Institute and co-author of the report, Matt Grudnoff. Welcome to Breakfast, Matt.
15: Thanks for having me.
14: The results of this report are truly staggering. Were you shocked yourself at the findings?
15: Um, I was certainly shocked. Um, I don't think we, I was surprised. And, and to be honest, I don't think most people would be surprised by these results. I think if you ask people since you know 2008, since the GFC, have you felt that you've gotten ahead? I think a lot of people would say no. Um, I think that stagnant wages... Um, and, and the fact that, that, you know, we've had the recent massive increase in prices, so the real wages, the amount of stuff you can buy has gone backwards. I think most people feel that they're either just keeping their head, their head above water, or in some cases, not even that.
14: So can we break down some of these findings? And 90% of income earners receiving only 7% of the country's wealth growth in the period 2009 to 2019. That's nearly everyone receiving almost nothing. (laughs)
15: That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, Basically what we looked at was um, real per adult economic growth. So real means that we account for inflation. We take out inflation. So your income might be growing, but if uh, the price of everything you're buying is also growing, you're not necessarily ahead. And the per adult is to account for population. So economic growth for the whole country might be growing, but that could just be because the population is getting bigger and per capita you're not actually getting ahead. So this is the real per capita economic growth, the kind of economic growth that you feel an increase in your living standards. So we looked at basically what happened to people's living standards and we found that, um, as you said, almost all of that went to the top 10% and the rest of us, 90% of the population, got almost none of that.
14: And what sort of an income threshold are we talking about when you refer to the bottom 90% of income earners?
15: So to be in the top 10%, you've got to be earning about $140,000, 135000 around that sort of level, a year or more. That will put you in the top 10%. So we're talking about people on substantial income.
14: And can you explain why the distribution is so skewed in favour of wealthy people and leaves almost well, I- everyone else back paddling?
15: Yeah, I think this is a story of profits and wages. So if we think back over (coughs) since the GFC, uh, while wages have been definitely stagnant um, uh, and very, very low, and, and real wages, when we account for inflation, have almost not moved at all, over that same period profits have continued to grow, particularly profits from large businesses. And those large businesses are mostly owned by people in the top 10%. So if you get most of your income or a substantial, almost all of your income from wages, you haven't done particularly well since the GFC. But if um, a substantial part of your income came from profit, from owning shares or owning businesses, um, then you have um, had a a decent increase in income. And so I think really it's that story of of pro, uh, businesses are doing well, um, but workers are not.
14: So if our overall economic growth is not being distributed to the general population, are Australians being sold alive by politicians who promote policies on the basis of their economic growth value?
15: Yeah, well, that's the big problem, isn't it? So we're always told that, that the objective is to grow the pie, to make it bigger so that we all benefit. But the assumption is that we all benefit. If the pie is growing but um, the rest of us aren't doing well, um, then there's no reason for us want the pie to grow. Um, if we want to all be a part of, uh, uh, of the Australian economy, if we all want to do well out of if we all want to work together, then uh, more of this growth has to go to the rest of the population um, in order to, to induce us all to want to do this.
14: We'll come back to uh, how we get to that point in a moment. But firstly, I just wanted to um, ask you about uh, Australia's history, because we haven't always had such an extreme uh, situation in terms of wealth inequality and distribution Uh, in the 50s to 60s, nearly all of the countries uh, real economic growth was was shared and enjoyed by the bottom ninety percent of adult income earners. So, what was happening then to uh, to give that result?
15: Yeah, we we looked at we didn't just look at the last ten years. We looked at it since basically nineteen fifty, and we found this massive change. Um, before about the nineteen eighties, um, we, we we saw a situation where, as you said. Growth was shared fairly evenly. The top 10% got about 10% of the economic growth and the rest of us got 90%. But things then changed in the 90s, um, in the, in sort of between about, uh, during, during, sorry, uh, during the 80s, things changed, uh, where the the, 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 distribution was about, um 50-50. That is, the top 10% got half of all economic growth and the 90% got about half. And I think what changed at that time was that neoliberal economics came into its own, um, in particular ideas like trickle-down economics, where if you, if you make the rich richer, um, then more will flow down to everybody else. And I think that's what's actually changed. We had a change where uh, the, the idea of policy was to, to help business grow um, and give everything to business, and, and then allow business to take care of workers. Uh, and I think that's why we've seen that change um, in, in the distribution of economic growth, that that, that really it's gone to businesses um, uh, and, and the owners of those businesses, the households who own those businesses, um, and workers just haven't done as
14: well. And you compared Australia's position to uh, other countries over the same period, and we were significantly uh, more unjust in the way we distributed wealth through that uh, most recent 10-year period. Does that mean that what Australia was doing in terms of policy uh, was particularly skewed to uh, company owners and profit makers compared to other countries?
15: Yeah, so if we look at other comparable countries and we compared um, countries and country groups like the European Union, so the European Union, Canada... Um, the US, the UK, countries like that, we found that they were all more likely, um, the top 10% was more likely to take a very large chunk of the growth. So at least half of the economic growth for all of those went to just the top 10%. But Australia was by far the worst. Um, none of the other countries had more than 90% going to the top 10%. And it's a great question as to what has happened in Australia. Um, Why is it that that in particular in Australia, it has been particularly bad? And I think it has to do with our industrial relations laws. Um, In particular, Australia has particularly strict industrial relations laws that are making it very, very hard for workers to be able to get pay rises. The, the prevalence of this kind of gig economy work, sham contracting, much more casualized part-time sort of work, um, work where, where people don't have access to sick pay, they don't have access to annual leave, they don't even necessarily know next week how many hours they're going to work. If, if you're in these kind of precarious work situations, it becomes a lot harder to go in and talk to your boss and and get a pay rise if you're not sure, if your boss can basically just cut your hours next week. So I think these kind of policies are the policies that are making it really hard for workers to get pay rises. And and because they can't get those pay rises, what we're seeing is is workers are not getting ahead and profits are growing ever faster. And
14: we're seeing this particularly playing out in the um, university uh, employment sector at the moment. And... Employment, unemployment is very low at the moment. So in theory, that should place workers in a stronger position to seek real wage increases. But if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is the the casualisation of a lot of our workforce means that that bargaining power just isn't there. Is that right?
15: Exactly right. So this is the big conundrum. Um, We're constantly told that the key to higher wages is um, lower unemployment. That is, if there's a real scarcity of workers, then businesses will be forced to pay higher wages. Um, you know, we're told that the unemployment rate, or the, un- the official unemployment rate, is as low as it has been in 40 years. But you know, if you go back to the 70s, which was what 40 years was 40 years ago, or the early 80s, and you ask people, well, what was the um, what was the The labor market like then and they will tell you it was very very different um, and that wages were rising a lot faster back in those that period than they are today and again I think that what's happened is is our industrial relations system has so radically changed over the last 40 years away from workers towards businesses that even with this kind of 40-year low in unemployment even when those conditions exist, wages still aren't growing um, particularly quickly and certainly not faster than inflation at the moment. And so there seems to be a break between low unemployment and higher wages um, that's happened in Australia.
14: So apart from the industrial relations situation, what are the other areas that potentially could, uh, you know, see a reversal of this situation what what, what other changes would you uh, see possible
15: well i think that um in particular if we can't change it at, at at that kind of business level about between the relationship between workers and businesses um then then the government needs to step in um and um start to redistribute itself. So if the government were to step in and start applying things like super profits taxes, for example, on businesses that are making extraordinary large profits, like in the energy industry at the moment, um, and then redistribute that to the people who need it. But um, I think that's kind of, while those uh, policies are excellent um, and we should implement them. I think at the, the very base what we need to do is we need to work out why it is that workers can't um get real wage rises with 40 year lows in in unemployment um and, and there needs to be some change in the industrial relations laws um and and a change in in how we view work when 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 we talk about what politicians often talk about well you know my my main focus is creating more jobs people think of jobs as kind of full time um permanent stable things where I can, you know, get a loan for a house um, and, and raise a family and, and, and basically get ahead in life. But the kind of jobs that are being offered are not those kind of jobs. So there's, there's this disconnect between what um, people think um, of, of as jobs when, that, when, when politicians are talking about, well, jobs is the most important focus and what's actually being offered. And, and that gap is, is a real problem.
14: So what's the response been from the government to the report?
15: Um, Well, the report has done exceedingly well. Um, It's been across the media. um, And um, I think that there is a focus at the moment, particularly from um, the current government, um, on industrial relations laws. We've seen some changes last year that went through Parliament, um, and there's talk that there'll be another round of changes, particularly around precarious work. Um, and I would really encourage the government to look at that precarious work stuff um, and, and look at how we can make jobs uh, more secure um, and, and, and enable workers to be able to, uh, to, to, to bargain with um, employers Um, and and able to get those higher wages. Because at the moment, all of the benefits of economic growth are really just flowing to business owners and and a small group within our society. And that's very unhealthy for our society um, socially. But even if you're not concerned about the social aspect, it's very bad for the economy. Uh, What um, the World Bank, IMF and OECD have found is that economies that um, distribute Their uh, economic growth more fairly, uh, grow faster than economies that uh, distribute their their economic growth to only a small group. So, if we want a faster growing economy, uh, well, we want everybody to benefit from that growth. But if everybody benefits from that growth, then the economy will grow faster. So, it's a virtual circle. If we can a virtuous circle, if we can basically um, try and distribute that economic growth more fairly.
14: Thank you very much for your time. Um, Yeah, that's a really excellent uh, overview of where we'd like to be and uh, let's uh, watch this space and hopefully talk to you again uh, with a better outlook.
15: (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. Thank you very much.
14: And that was Matt Gradnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author with David Richardson of the report Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia,
4: thanks there for, thanks to Claudia there for that interesting interview. Up next on 3CR, you're going to hear about Tudor. Uh, you're going to hear from Australian workers who participated in, in a unique training opportunity. The training was provided by Tudor, a trade union skills training organisation that runs courses and workshops across Australia from the 1970s to the 1990s. It's a story of transformation and empowerment and a reminder of the great value of training and education can bring to individual lives and workplaces. A huge thank you to Alice Gardner for producing and sharing this story. I'll hand over to Alice now.
2: My name is Alice Garner and I'm a historian based at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. In early 2020, I joined a team of researchers in labour law and vocational and adult education to work on a project investigating the history of trade union training in Australia. We were looking specifically at an organisation called TUTA, that is T-U-T-A, which stands for the Trade Union Training Authority. Some of you may have heard of it. Perhaps you once took a tutor course or worked for TUTA, Maybe you even have one of the Tutor t shirts stashed away in a drawer somewhere. We interviewed about 60 people for the project over 2020 and 21 trainers, administrators, and course participants from across Australia. There are many stories that can be told about Tutor. But for May Day, it feels right to focus on the experience of Tutor course participants. What did they get out of the training? What sticks in their memories as important? Did Tutor help them improve conditions for workers? This audio story focuses on what worked well in Tutor courses to empower people who were working in or for unions. It is not the full story of Tutor by any means. But before we listen to some memories, a bit of background. In July 1975, only a few months before the dismissal of the Whitlam Labor Government, an Australian Act of Parliament established something unique in the world, a fully government-funded statutory authority designed to prepare union officials and job representatives to participate more effectively as partners in industry. The Australian Trade Union Training Authority would go on to design and deliver thousands of union training courses across the nation for 21 years. Tudor benefited from bipartisan support for most of its life. Though the Whitlam government initiated it, the Fraser Liberal government did continue to fund and support the authority. There were training centres in each state and a purpose-built National Residential College in Albury-Wodonga on the Victorian-New South Wales border. This national college was named after Clyde Cameron, the Minister for Labour, who had promoted and ushered the tutor bill through Parliament. Courses were also run in regional and remote areas by travelling trainers. The basic shop stewards courses covered union processes and structure, running meetings, communicating effectively with members, public speaking... Negotiating and Reporting Back. High-level courses for union officials and employees in specialist roles covered areas like industrial law, research skills, advocacy and negotiation, financial administration, training and media and communications. The course participants we interviewed told us that the educational approaches used by tutor trainers had a powerful impact no matter what kind of educational background people came from. Bipartisan backing for trade union training began to decline from the late 1980s, and in 1996, Tudor was abolished following the election of the anti-union Howard government. In its final stages, Tudor ran about 5,000 training days per year, and government funding was in the realm of $10 million per annum. When union training was done well, what did it mean for the participants? Just a note on audio quality. We recorded these interviews on uh, video conferencing software because we were in lockdown for much of the life of this project.
12: Was that training that I did that changed my life? more than doing a second degree and getting a Bachelor of Education, you know. It gave me much more practical skills. This was a real adult educational experience, very different to anything that I'd had at university, right? Um, the way that it was structured, we were in a small group of people. You know, we were given all that information. People listened to us. You know, we had it listen to them. It was really, really interactive, I was on the executive of my school and I was only young. I would have only been 26 and uh, I didn't come from any sort of political background um, and this was offered and I decided I would give up a week of my school holidays to take up this opportunity, but I didn't really know what it was going to be. And I have to say that I went there for the five days and I learned so much in those five days that it set me up for the whole of my life to be an activist, um, a communicator, a negotiator. My claim to fame is that I'm a very good campaigner and I I learnt those campaigning skills in that five-day session. Decision-making in the 1970s across the whole of society was completely different. It was a really patriarchal society. It was very top-down. The men were in all of the senior positions everywhere in society, There were hardly any women anywhere. So the situation was that people didn't have meeting skills. By going and doing this course, I then gained the skills. I then gained an understanding of how committees work, the responsibilities, running meetings, taking minutes, uh, how the agendas... Like when you go to a meeting, it's like you're immersed in it, but you actually don't understand how it works. So by going and doing this one-week course, it put me into a position to you know, to actually be able to be an effective member of an executive and start to plan what we were going to do. It just transformed the way we did things because all of a sudden we started to be organised and have power.
13: What tutor courses provided was a forum where it was participative education. I later learned it was called popular education, where you're actually talking from your experience who you are and then linking that to the learning journey. So looking at anchoring information on something, developing your hooks for your memories, looking at um, a very tactile uh, form of learning rather than the academic form of learning. I can storytell. You know, I can do those things, <laughs> but they weren't valued in in academia. It was really eye opening for me. I'm I'm dyslexic. Um, I have always struggled with the the concept of learning um, in terms of the academic learning preference. What was eye opening for me, and I, and I guess has then led me to my journey, is that first course that I went to because it was run so differently. It was about participative education. It, it was I was in an environment where I I was learning, so you know, I actually then had an opportunity to experience um, you know, a, a story that, that that challenged my perception of that I was not capable of learning. That then gave me the confidence in terms of going from a union delegate to a union official, then having the passion to want to be a trainer. Part of that was then about people would say, "Well, why in the world and how could you be a trainer if you're dyslexic and cannot?" learn and my response to that is my passion for training was because I was dyslexic if I became aware that I could learn because I was exposed to this type of education forum then I want to make damn sure other people can too and I want to be part of that journey it was the inspiration to then be an educator because I knew what it felt like
0: the world it was something I mean i had been to university but never never been because again at university back then anyway um, it was just you go into the lecture there's 600 people you just listen take notes you go into your tutes again you listen from time to time you had to present something in the tute but it was pretty sterile compared to what what was happening at Clyde Cameron um, courses were uh, designed on the basis of adult learning principles, which was a new concept back then. Um, so it wasn't just rote learning. I talk at you. It was actually learning by doing lots of different um, methodologies. And there were fantastic courses. Fantastic. Because when I went to the, at some point, um, in my time at the clothing union, I attended tutor courses. They were fantastic. Um, and then, of course, when I went to Tudor and I delivered them and the feedback from participants. And do you know, for working-class people, a lot of them who had left school early, to be in an environment, a learning environment, my God, they savoured it. And they knew exactly how valuable it was. And they had so much fun. And guess what? Some of them are national secretaries, you know, who came from the shop floor. Um, smart. These people were smart. I mean, most most union delegates are smart people. Um, a lot of unionists like back then, again, there was this real class thing that, if you worked in a factory or on, in a truck, you were done. They were not done. They were very smart people, switched on. Um, they knew which way was up, but they didn't have the formal uh, training or qualifications. They were inspired.
16: The shop steward's course was a, you know, basically how, how does a union operate, how does it, Uh, structure itself, what's the shop steward's roles and responsibilities, Um, how do you handle yourself in discussions at the local level, Um, talking about recruitment, talking about uh, engagement of of topics. And, again, a lot of those were focused on the industries that we worked in, Um, but, of course, a lot of it was new ground. Um, It was education in the trade union sector that really hadn't really hadn't had, I suppose, a a great deal of focus in the lead-up to that. Residential courses were more uh, a a tighter course, a smaller group, um, and predominantly a a higher level. So an advocacy course was going to be a whole lot different to a a shop steward's course, for example. The advocacy courses, I can always remember, and I I always reminded people... um, uh, one of the representation cases that we had post the 89 dispute is that I had something like um, 10 lawyers sitting at the bar table with me on my own um, including a, a QC who's now a judge um, and I, I did them over and no one was more shocked than me <laughs> because they they could not believe um, that I'd got away with it because um, we were yeah, the Fed pilots was struggling for cash at that stage so we weren't going to pay a lawyer so i went along and did the case and, and of course we won it but see that was the advantage of training um that gave me that capability i'm not yeah you know, it was the ability to get up and and run a story i had a very successful time in the trade union movement as i said i was elected official um i was the president of the trades Hall at one stage and on the trades Hall executive so you, you sort of look at that background and sort of say, well, probably it may have, would I have done that if I'd possibly not been involved in some of those courses? Possibly not.
11: It was the Level 1 Union Representative course and it was held, was it the, the tutor offices in the ACT in probably 1980 roughly. I think it was about two days, probably an introduction and a Level 1 one with some role plays, et cetera. I believe it was Anne Sullivan at the time. Now, Anne had a sort of a leadership role in the union at that point in the ACT, and I, I can recall things about Anne that, you know, she was like the sole female voice at the time in the union movement there. So as the Federated Clarks' Union Rep, I think I became aware of the training and got support to do the training um, in that role. Um, it was all males. I was the only female in the group. Um, and it would have been probably you know a cross mix of a couple of different industries, but i would say very strongly a public service environment um, rather than private sector at the time i think i think in a way it was probably better than a lot of things I've experienced in later years um very much more inclusive you know i've I find that with technology a lot and i used to work in the training environment in 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 public sector and private sector and managed training in public sector. So one of the things I've found with technology over the years is people tend to put together PowerPoints and read them, you know, rather than having um, very open discussion and role plays and interaction and, and that type of thing. I've had a mix of training over my life, and um, but I think, you know, the pressures of time, the availability of people, the technology, um, things have changed a lot of what people call training now. Something stayed with me um, that in one of the tea breaks at some point, I had a conversation with Anne and I was very, I was only in my late 20s, early 30s, but I, I was probably naive to a lot of things to a large extent, um, or or maybe they weren't an issue for me at the time. And certainly the gender thing personally was not an issue being the only woman there but Anne said to me at one point um, you know it's it's it, you know we need you to stay in the union because there are you're, you're you know there are not very many women in the union at the time um, it was something that stayed with me and resonated
7: our union is numerically quite small just over a thousand people and it's a very insular environment. Um, Air traffic controllers who make up about 95% of our members tend to be an insular group. It's a highly technical um, occupation and um, their knowledge of external industries and the workings of other unions are not necessarily something that they would have a good handle on. So we saw a great deal of, Benefit in, in exposing them to the wider industrial relations system. I, I think there's enormous benefit to be gained out of that training. From my perspective, a large um, plus in involvement with Tudor was exposure outside our own little envelope. Tudor
9: tended to develop that. Camaraderie, that it doesn't matter what political background you came from, you're all in it for the same reasons. And, and the reasons were, you know, noble. Uh, and where we could help each other, um, you know, we, we would do that. There was white collar and blue collar, all mixed up, which was another feature of... of, of um, it was really important right across the board, you know, covered every union. I remember we reacted against the trainers because we felt that they were like... Um, you know, the, the, we, were the, we were the lions in the cage and they were the trainers, you know, cracking the whip, you know, so we didn't like that. But we did learn the, the basic rudimentary uh, theory of adult education and John Saw was one of the ones that was, was clearly a leader in that area. He came from the UK. And the skills that I learned in that were invaluable because I used it for the rest of my career, you know. Interestingly enough, I've, I've had lifelong friends out of that, you know.
2: I hope these memories have got you thinking about what kinds of education and training have been powerful for you. Sometimes the most memorable learning experiences happen when you least expect them. I have a little personal story to add here, an example of the ways that tutor training could reverberate beyond its original purpose. The first speaker in our audio story was Anne Horrigan-Dixon, She was, for many years, the director of the Fitzroy Learning Network. This was after she did her tutor training. Back in 2001, she invited me to work with her on a community theatre project called Kanyama Khan, directed by Robin Laurie. In that play, asylum seekers and refugees from Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan, who were then learning English at the Learning Network, told their own stories on stage. They did this backed by professional musicians, writers and actors, including Kavisha Mazella, Dursunachar, Majid Shokor, Arnold Zabel and Lisa Mazza. Anne's campaigning around refugee rights during the life of this play was something to behold. She managed, among other feats, to get us all into Parliament House in Canberra to perform to members of Parliament, asylum seekers telling their own stories on stage inside Parliament House. It was an unforgettable experience. Twenty years after that time, I bumped into Anne in a doctor's waiting room. I told her I had just started working on a project about union training, and she said, I did some union training and it changed my life. And she explained that all the campaigning skills she had used for the play Kanyama Khan... She had learnt or adapted from a one-week tutor training course back in the late 1980s. To finish up, I'd like to thank the people whose voices appear in this story: Anne Horrigan Dixon, Kathleen Galvin, Kathy Strinus, Laurie Cox, Pat Tilly, Peter McGuane, and Serge Zarino and original music was improvised by Ted Bowers on piano. Research and interviews were conducted by me, Alice Garner, Mary Leigh, Anthony Forsyth and Renee Burns. Thanks also for project support from Liam Byrne, ACTU's resident historian, Max Ogden and the late Michael Behan, who was the first director of the Western Australian Tudor and the late Stuart McIntyre. If you'd like to find out more about Tudor's history, check out our project website at tutorboldexperiment.com.au That is tutorboldexperiment.com.au It's a work in progress. We'll be adding more material to it as we go. And please look out for publications and more audio stories in future.
4: And that was Alice Garner there. That was an excellent piece there from Alice. Well, thanks very much for all the interviews today, Annie, Claudia. Uh, some great stuff there on this lovely May Day. Uh, keep listening to 3CR throughout the day. We've got programs all on a May Day theme, of course. This includes Woman on the Line, which is up next, uh, Democracy Now! at 9am, uh, which goes on to 10am, and Union Solidarity at 2pm, which goes on to 230 uh, also if you want to jo- uh join Joe Toscano's Mayday uh, May Day Walking Tour, that kicks off at eleven a.m. at Chumley Place. Uh, so make sure Chumley Place Carlton, so make sure if you want to get down there, it starts off at eleven a.m. and join Joe on his interesting uh tour. So um thanks very much for your company here on uh 3CR this Monday morning, this May Day. Uh, my name's been Patrick Morrow. It's been great fun uh giving you all the o- insights on this May Day. Um, and make sure, uh, if you want to listen back uh, to the show, you can listen back on the podcast via the 3CR website, via Monday Breakfast, um, and you can also listen to us streaming via 3CR.org and 3CR Digital. Well, we're going to finish off with a lovely song called Bala Chow. I hope you enjoy.
13: Allah
3: Appena alzata, o oh bella ciao, bella ciao,
1: bella ciao. Alla mattina, appena alzata. Il risaia mi tocca E fra gli insetti E le zanzare Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao E fra gli insetti le zanzare duro lavoro mi tocca far. il capo in piedi col suo bastone oh bella ciao bella ciao bella ciao Il capo in piedi col suo bastone E noi curve a lavorare. Ma verrà un giorno che tutte quante Oh, bella, ciao, bella, ciao, bella, ciao.
4: I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.
2: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events
6: at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
11: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.